Welcome to Pull Quotes, a weekly podcast from the Ryerson Review of Journalism. I'm Michal Stein. And I'm Lydia Abraha. This week, we're talking about the education beat and how it intersects with reporting on Indigenous affairs. As part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Indigenous history was going to be incorporated into the K-12 curriculum. Education was highlighted as one of the most important action items. But this past July, curriculum writing sessions were canceled abruptly. And if you remember, around the same time, Doug Ford's government reversed the Liberals' 2015 sexual education curriculum to go back to the 1998 syllabus. As you can imagine, these changes to the sex ed curriculum were in the headlines for weeks. We wonder, why was the conversation around the cuts to the Indigenous curriculum so much quieter in mainstream media? Today, we'll speak to Louise Brown, who had a lot to say about that question. She's a former education reporter for the Toronto Star, who recently retired. Over the course of her career, much of her coverage focused on Indigenous communities. Julian Brave Noisecat is a political analyst for 350.org and writes for publications like The Guardian, CBC, Huffington Post, and others. He's also a contributing editor for Canadian Geographic. He wrote the foreword for Canadian Geographic's Indigenous Peoples Atlas. And he joins us to talk about why this curriculum change is so vital. With me in studio today, I have Louise Brown. And Louise was an education reporter at the Toronto Star for more than 30 years. And uh, she just recently retired. Uh, and I'm so happy to have her here with us to uh, talk about education, how we talk about education, how we talk about Indigenous issues in the context of education. So, Louise, welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Uh, so, Louise, you were uh, at the Toronto Star for over 30 years. Can you talk a bit about how you got into the education beat? Oh, um, well, it wasn't the first thing I did, but when I did get assigned to it back in the early 80s, um, I just, it clicked. I really loved it. Um, and I never got tired of it. People often want to change beats after, you know, three or four years. And I really never, ever got tired of it. I find it's, first of all, it's so important. Um and the breadth of it, I mean, it's from kindergarten right to PhDs. I mean, there's no end to what you can look at when you're examining the education system. So um, I loved stories in particular about um, different, about how our backgrounds influence our, how we learn, how we teach. Um, so I was very interested in demographics, and I did a lot of writing about how different groups, often of immigrants, um, struggled with particular issues in in our Ontario schools. Um, but I also then got very interested in, in Indigenous education as well. So yeah, I stuck with it. So what kind of stories were were your favorite kinds to cover? Oh, well, as I say, um, about the stories that looked at the um, struggles of different communities were in particular interesting to me. One of my favorite assignments was um, I spent a week up in fly-in reserves in Northern Ontario covering the schools there. And and when they're very remote, they, they only have elementary schools, which is one of the problems because they have to go away for high school. But that was um, possibly one of the most powerful series I was ever involved in. It was an eye-opener for me and um, gave me a, a brief but very um, 
a powerful window into the lives of, of Indigenous Canadians in remote locations. So that was that was really cool. It's not something you very, you know, flying in on a bush plane and being billeted with people. So it's, it was an opportunity I was really grateful to have. And the stories that we got out of that were, I think, really important. Um, and it also introduced us really to me and, my, and the photographer went to the legacy of residential schools. You can see when you spend a little bit of time and it was you know, just a few days, but even then you could see the impact of residential schools and that, that stuck with me. Uh, so when was it that you did that project? That was back in 2005 or six, I think. So, yeah. And, and what was your, your impression of that, uh, that school in that town? Well, we visited three different communities in Northern Ontario that were flying, um, in the Anishinaabe nation, just North of Thunder Bay and Sioux Lookout. Um, I think what we saw was that that it, it it's a community issue. So and and you do see the impact of the residential schools in the the ver the struggles for an identity for the nuclear family. So because um, two or three generations ago the children were removed, they weren't able to experience nuclear family life, which is what so many people around the world have, you know, mother and father and kids and and how that structure works from day to day and going to school and getting up and the routines and the um, opportunities. Anyway, so without that, I think that's what, what I understand is meant by the legacy of it, because when they came back, they didn't, so the people who went to residential schools didn't experience that family life. And then when they had children... They can't. They haven't. They don't have a model, and it, it does continue. Um, it, it does continue from generation to generation. So we did see that, mm-hmm. and that was really. I think that what it said to me was that the one of the solutions has to be rebuilding parenting skills and the sense of family and supporting people as they do that. So, mm-hmm. so how, if at all. How did the results of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission impact the way that you reported on residential schools? Well, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, at its heart, called for education. I mean, that was really the heart. I mean, there were you know, so many rec- calls to action. But when I interviewed Senator Murray Sinclair, who was the head of it, and said, well, in a nutshell, you know, What's the answer? And he just said, education. Education is at the heart of it. So to me, that was a fantastic opportunity to write about what does he mean and what, where do we go? So there are a number of recommendations, calls to action, as they're called in the, in the commission's report. But two of them are very specific about making um, curriculum mandatory from kindergarten through grade 12 curriculum that teaches um, children, all children, not just Indigenous, but all children about about residential schools, about Indigenous history, about Indigenous culture. It's been missing in the Ontario curriculum. It's been absent. And so there were some curriculum writing sessions that were scheduled for as recently as this past summer, and there were lots of uh, improvements that were kind of in the works. And then, of course, we saw um, that after uh, the Conservatives took power in the provincial government in Ontario, um, 
those all got canceled. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about your thoughts on the implications of that. It was shocking. <laughs> it was shocking and shameful because we've, and, I mean, educators and indigenous um, uh, leaders have been calling for decades for better education. And so when the TRC report came out in 2015, it was very specific. And by and large, Canada responded saying, yep, you're right. We got this. So in 2016, Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne said, we're on it. You know, she had a, a, a report, The Journey Together, and it spelled out what, would, what Ontario schools would do. And I think dis- the fall of 2018 was a bit of a target. They hoped that the new curriculum right through could be ready to go by this fall. And that's what they were coming to do in July. And so to have it, have the plug pulled on something this important so abruptly and with no explanation is just a, it's a disgrace. And what I don't understand was the confusion around it, too. There was a bit of buck passing. The Minister of Education said, oh, well, we didn't, not our fault, we didn't tell them to. The bureaucracy did it. Well, first of all, I've never heard of a bureaucracy doing something that extreme without the blessing, much less the orders of their political masters. But, And I would say to the minister, if I were reporting still, um, if you didn't like it, if they didn't have your blessing, if you didn't think they should cancel it, then you certainly had the power to stop them and say, whoa, that's not the kind of efficiency we're talking about. There were oblique references to, oh, well, it's supposed to be every ministry's been told to tighten their belt, and that's why they did it. Well, how much, first of all, this is one of the one of the biggest, most urgent issues facing Canadians right now. So that's not where you tighten your belt. Um, and so... It seems right now, although the minister has has been quoted as saying, "Oh no, we're we're going to do it. We're we're, we're going to continue on and do it and get some input and consult experts and develop the resources that the schools need." Well, that's exactly what they stopped. Right. It was developing the resources with the indigenous consultants. So I think right now, it, officially, they say it's on quote pause. And I called even yesterday to my colleague at our Queen's Park Bureau who covers it. And I mm-hmm. said, is there something happening? Are they resuming? And she said, no. So I would say it's in limbo, not pause. And I think that's just a shame. So you said if you were still reporting today, you would have been asking these questions. Why didn't you ask them to resume if if it wasn't you that put it on pause? Um, did you see any reporters asking these kind of questions? That's where it's in the aftermath of these big bombshells that beat reporters can serve a purpose. And so when that kind of thing happens, you can go back. You have the time and this commitment to space from your editors, if they've got an education reporter, to really deconstruct it, to go and and even explain the way they did with se- with the sex ed. There was a lot of coverage about that, but of course it's a very sexy topic, mm-hmm. so everybody was very... There was great coverage on that. With Indigenous, there was initial coverage of the shock of this, the pause button being pushed. But afterwards, I didn't see the kind of follow-up. So what I might have, and, and perhaps... It, 
will be done is to look and see, okay, well, what, where does that leave us now? Right. So what is the curriculum now? And why is it still falling short? Because they did that with very well with sex ed. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what's missing. You know, talk about consent, talk about sexting. Yes. So it's the same thing with Indigenous. So what is missing in the grade 6 history, in the grade 8 history, in the grade 10 history? What's missing? That kind of mm-hmm. thing, just to let people know. And I think keep the awareness going to keep it in the spotlight so that's one of the benefits of having beat reporters is that they can keep deepening the awareness of the issue. Yes. And I actually wanted to uh, touch on that disparity a little bit. You talk about how um, we have really seen a lot of great reporting on the cut to the sex ed curriculum, which happened around the same time. Um, the difference there, I suppose, being that uh teachers had been teaching the new curriculum for the last three years. So this would be um, cutting a curriculum that had already been implemented. Um, Why do you think there was a disparity in reporting on these two issues? Well, you can't compete with the appeal of anything to do with sex. (laughs) Sex ed has always been a very, I mean, a sexy topic it is. I mean, there are sexy topics, you know, in in education as there are in any field. And of course, um, and it's very politicized as well. There was such opposition at the time, heated opposition. So it's, it's it's a real water cooler kind of issue. Everyone's talking about it. It's the kind of thing that people will call in to, to call to radio talk shows and, and everyone has a thought about it, right? With Indigenous, I think there's a real, there's um, a discomfort among non-Indigenous people to really address it. There's not the familiarity. Um, And this is one of the problems they found even with teachers. Um, There was a report by People for Education a couple of years ago saying the biggest obstacle to really overhauling teaching in our schools it's not so much the curriculum. It's teachers, they're nervous because they're all, they're saying, I don't even know what, am I supposed to say Indian? Am I supposed to say First Nation? I thought it was Aboriginal. Like just the terminology shouldn't, but I mean, it's pretty simple, but it still intimidates teachers. And over the years, teachers have told me, and certainly it was documented in that report, that they're just, if that, if it's the last part of the curriculum, they're often comfortable teaching and I think the average person in the public often that's the same thing so if you have a call-in radio show on the the cancellation of indigenous curriculum writing there aren't there's not that universal comfort with well I'll tell you what I think about that you know it's Mm -hmm. and that's the problem it's a vicious circle if we grow up in schools and as children learn the terminology, the history, the good and the bad, the the disgrace that Canada has, for which we've apologized, and and now what? Moving forward, all those issues that it, that's why we need it, so that it would be um, an easy um, issue for us to talk about and something we really care about. At this point, to me, it just shows the need for better education. Um, finally, to kind of wrap up. Uh with your wealth of experience, uh, what do you think journalists need to keep in mind when they're covering Indigenous stories in the context of education? 
Well, first of all, I mean, I'm as a non-Indigenous reporter, I certainly want to make that clear. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm aware of that fact now that more than ever that we realize the whole cultural appropriation issue and telling other people's stories. You know, it's great to airlift me into some reserve up. But, you know, it, it's much, much more powerful when you have an Indigenous reporter like Tanya Talaga who can speak for her community. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to... Um, Listen and be patient when we're taking stories from the Indigenous community. I think education is is such a key um, to reconciliation that I think there should be more stories about education. Because there are two different... I mean, there's the coverage of the remote communities, which are their schools that are run by the federal government. Mm-hmm. And the, the issues there are entirely different than the ones we've been talking about here in the Southern Ontario and uh, with Doug Ford and the, the Ontario-run schools. And I, th- I just think maybe education reporters should think more often of Indigenous students and issues. I think really the, that would be my best uh, bit of advice is just keep it top of mind, even if Queen's Park is not keeping it top of mind. That's what we as journalists can do, is keep it top of mind, even when the school system and politicians are trying to shove it to the back burner. Thank you very much, Louise. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. It was great. So today I'm speaking with Julian Brave Noise Cat on the phone from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, Julian is a correspondent for Real America with Jorge Ramos, a contributing editor at Canadian Geographic, and has written for The Guardian, The Nation, The Paris Review, CBC, uh, Pacific Standard, HuffPost, um, Indian Country Today, uh, Frontier Magazine, and many other outlets. Uh, He is also a policy analyst at 350.org. He is a member of the Canem Lake Band, and uh, yeah, is joining me today by phone. How are you, Julian? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, thanks. I wanted to start by asking you uh, why why you think curriculum revisions are such an important part of reconciliation. I mean, I think that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission made it quite clear in their calls to action, uh, numbers 10, 12, 62, 63, and, and many others relate to the importance of overhauling and including uh, Indigenous history, culture, Indigenous relevant materials in curricula across Canada. Uh, and so I think that it's, you know, I agree with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think that every government across Canada has a responsibility to, uh, you know, implement the the calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think that that's a baseline duty. Prior to the um, provincial government change in Ontario, uh, there was a body that was setting that up and there were writing sessions that were scheduled for this summer that were canceled abruptly. Uh, What impact do you think this halting the rewriting of the curriculum will have on reconciliation? You know, I contributed to, uh, I wrote the foreword to the Indigenous Peoples Atlas of Canada, uh, an atlas that tries to uh, account for the Indigenous history of um, this nation, which is much deeper than the than, than actual Canadian history, right? You know, Indigenous peoples have been here for 
since time immemorial, but archaeologically, we go back at least 15,000 years across uh, this continent. It, it, it's really, it's, I, I, would, I would create it, I would uh, compare it to uh, people who deny climate science, people who deny, you know, the scientific fact of uh, evolution. You know, the, the, the notion that you could teach the history of Ontario or Canada without teaching the history of indigenous peoples is, I think on the face of it, people should see that and, 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 and just be outraged and laugh because it's just so preposterous and absurd. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Indigenous Peoples Atlas uh, because it is a really just incredible resource. And there are so many Indigenous voices that are that are centered in that text. What impact do you think this kind of project uh, can have on the way that we talk about and teach Indigenous issues? So yeah, the Indigenous Peoples Atlas of Canada is a four-volume um, atlas uh, written by over 200 Indigenous contributors uh, that that just start to 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 scratch the surface of that 15,000 years uh, of history that stretches from you know all the coasts from north to east to west uh, and down to to the southern border with the United States. It's really a remarkable uh, work, and I'm I'm so proud to have been part of it and to have been asked to, uh, you know, write the foreword for, for a book that I think will probably end up on on library shelves and uh, on coffee tables and in, uh, you know, in, in schools across Canada. I think that that was an incredible opportunity. I'm so thankful. Um, you know, I think that, you know, on the same, in the same vein of education, I really do believe in the transformative power of knowledge and the transformative power of, of young people learning about, um, you know, the, the, the true and, and full history of Canada. And my hope is that, you know, uh, having a, a text, a book, uh, like the Indigenous People of Atlas of Canada will lead more, more young Canadians who are not Indigenous, especially uh, to learn about Indigenous people, to take interest in our issues, to be advocates for our rights, to try to build a more just relationship with the first peoples whose land they live upon, uh, and then also to empower and, and, and bring pride to uh, Indigenous peoples who are just now coming out of that horrific um, experience of, of colonization in the residential schools, who are just now feeling, um, you know, a sense of pride in who they are and, and who we are and and um, what that means, and, and the possibility for us to be real leaders in, in um, you know, the fight for progress and social justice in Canada and beyond. Uh, you know, so I think that obviously one book is not, not going to change the world, or very few books get the opportunity to change the world. But I do think that, uh, you know, something like that, especially in the hands of, of young people and teachers, uh, does, does have the potential to, uh, you know, make a small difference. Something that you write about in your foreword, um, you talk about uh, the connection between uh, land and people and that, and that the stories flow from this connection between land and people. And so I'm wondering, that is a kind of bigger idea. And as journalists, when we're writing about these kind of connections, how do you think we can uh, ground that in real stories? Yeah, so I mean, the basic idea that I was trying to elucidate really briefly in in, um, 
in that forward, or one of the ideas was that basically indigenous peoples, because we have this deep, long, uh, you know, connection with, with the land and history upon the land, it's obviously it's where we were born, it's where our gods reside, it's where our, our people, um, you know, are, are buried, it's where we will someday be returned to the soil. It's, it's all of that to us and more. Um, and so I was trying to get at this, this, this fact, which is that this rootedness in place, this relationship to land, uh, is really fundamental to uh, our experience and our identity. And obviously, as a writer or as a storyteller, it's really deeply connected to how um, we narrate those stories. I think that that's a, a key part of the, uh, you know, a key part of, of my uh, perspective and writing pra practice as a indigenous person for a journalist you know i i'm still actually trying to to, to work this this out myself you know I, I think um what does that mean uh you know as a reporter as someone who goes and speaks to people how can you in your writing and your reporting uh, and your storytelling better locate yourself as a reporter and the, your subjects on the land uh how can you relate to uh, readers, both indigenous and non-indigenous, uh, you know, that, that type of, uh, connection and, and that sort of a thing, you know, I, I'm not sure that I have all the answers to that yet. I think that there are a number of, um, there are a number of, of writers and journalists who, who do it, you know, quite well, you know, there's a number of Canada, people like Connie Walker, uh, Duncan McHugh, Tanya Palaga, um, you know, many others, uh, Alicia Elliott, uh, Therese Myatt, who's a memoirist. Um, but, you know, I, I think that uh, there's different ways to do it, obviously, and that there's, you know, there are many different indigenous traditions. There are many different indigenous perspectives. There are indigenous peoples like myself who live in, in, in cities and in urban centers. And what does it mean to be rooted in a place that is, uh, you know, both indigenous and a city? Um, so I think that we're just starting to, to scratch the surface of, of what that means for, for writing and reporting practices. Um, and so the notion that there's really a right way to do it yet, you know, I think we're just starting to figure out what some of the ways uh, to do it might be. To kind of wrap things up, as we follow this story and, and hopefully see some development, uh, what kind of sources do you think we need to be hearing in these conversations that we're not currently? Um, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in hearing from the everyday people who are, who are really living the story. So, uh, you know, politicians are great. You know, talking heads are great. Thought leaders are great. Um, but what about the people who are, who are out there in their communities, you know, really doing the work of advancing uh, indigenous rights and self-determination, advancing reconciliation. Uh, what about the people who are, you know, the people who are 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 having to get water from, uh, you know, a, a water jug because they're living with a boil water advisory? What about the families who are mourning the loss uh, of of women and and, and girls and children uh, to the horrible horrible phenomenon of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls? Uh, what about the communities that are that are, you know, either fighting pipelines or already have, uh, you know, a pipeline running through their water supply and, you know, are, are living with that environmental injustice, that environmental racism? You know, I, I want to hear from those people. I think that the best journalism, in my opinion, is not 
just a journalist who can go out and get, you know, insert sort of important Canadian figure, important Indigenous figure. But the people who go out and find the people who we've never heard of uh, who are doing the work in their communities or who are living the reality that we're trying to elucidate and call attention to through our reporting, you know, that's the stuff that really gets me excited. So, um, you know, that's what I hope to do in some of my reporting and writing. Uh, and I'd love to see, there's a number of Canadian journalists, I'll say, who, who do exactly that. And I'd love to see um, more and more, you know, take on that work across Canada. Because I think, you know, if, if journalists have any role to play in the reconciliation process, in, you know, the parallel work of, of advancing truth and knowledge and understanding about Indigenous peoples in our current circumstances, I think that's it right there. Wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Julian. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. And now for our favorite segment, pull quotes. Michal, what is your favorite pull quote today? Uh, So this isn't so much a favorite, and I'm actually not going to read the whole thing because uh, I don't want to. Um, Because it's actually pretty upsetting, and uh, it's going to be a pretty upsetting news story to follow in the coming weeks and months. Um, It seems that there was some kind of uh, sexual assault incident that happened at St. Mike's College, and... um, what I wanted to note is uh, the, some of the language that's being used to talk about it in this very very early stage where we really don't know much of anything. Um, but people are using uh, the term possible hazing incident. So in uh, News Talk 1010's tweet about it, uh, they talked about that Toronto police are investigating a possible hazing incident. The reason I want to be cautious about language like hazing is uh, it plays into the kind of boys will be boys uh, trope that takes a lot of the responsibility out of what uh, is possibly a really um, harmful action. And so uh, my my pull quote, I guess, is the word haze this week. Uh, and uh, I hope that this issue is addressed responsibly. I agree. I agree. So, Lydia, what's your pull quote today? Well, what really caught my eye was uh, this article... Uh, published in theconversation.org. Uh, um, and it's about how environmental reporting is supposedly one of the most dangerous beats in journalism, which really surprised me. Uh, it's based off a study by Michigan State University. Um, and for like it stated, 40 environmental reporters died from 2005 to tw- 2016 across the world. And uh, the reason behind this controversy has to do with political ba- battles, vague distinctions in many countries about what's a journalist and what's an activist, and indigenous rights to their land. The article talked about Miles Howe, a Canadian reporter who was assigned to cover protests by the Elsipatog First Nation in New Brunswick. They were protesting fracking, um, and Howe was arrested multiple times. Uh, and during one of the protests, a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police pointed him out and shouted, he's with them. And um, it just caused a great cause, uh, great mayhem. So uh, my pull quote from the article was a quote from how uh, he said, many times I was the only accredited journalist witnessing rather violent arrests, third trimester pregnant women being locked up and guys being tackled to the ground. Um, that really stuck out to me. Uh, 
would never think that reporting on environmental issues would lead to such um, possibly traumatic situations. Thank you, Lydia. Yeah. And that's our show. Pull Quotes is produced by Mikhail Stein and by me, Lydia Abraha. Thanks to Julian Brave Noise Cat and Louise Brown for joining us today. Thanks to Rihanna Jackson-Kelso for production help this week. Thanks to Angela Glover and Lindsay Hanna for technical help. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. And if you learned something today, please help us spread the word by sharing our show on social media and leaving us a rating on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter at Liddy Abraha. And me at Michal Stein too. You can also visit rrj.ca for new stories every week. We'll see you next week on Pull Quotes.